And this is not a partisan issue. Just 10 years ago, a Republican-led Congress cracked down on corporations moving offshore tax havens uh, like the Cayman Islands. Offshore tax havens in places like Bermuda. A lot of companies also evade taxes through tax havens in Switzerland and Bermuda and the Cayman Islands. The U.S. government has been extremely vocal that it does not like tax havens. Wealthy people can use offshore systems to hide assets from taxes and investigations. And yet, the laws on the books in several different states have made the U.S. a tax haven. These laws have created a thriving industry. A lot of people protect their wealth here. And now, we know who some of those people are. We know this because of the Pandora Papers. The Pandora Papers are millions of newly obtained financial documents that the Washington Post and the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists have been investigating. And these documents allowed the Post and ICIJ to essentially follow the money. In this episode, we're talking about one of the stories that they found, how they traced direct lines from one of the most rural states in the country to super rich and powerful people around the world. Some of those people are prominent politicians and business tycoons. And some of those people amass their wealth amid credible accusations of crimes or human rights abuses. And they're hiding their assets in our backyard because of the protections that they've received here. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, uh, members of the committee. I've come here this morning uh, with just a concern in, in, to one section of this bill, Section 3, might be the first opponent we've ever had on the trust bill. Um. They created harm. They did harm to my children, I'll tell you that right now. Them enabling this kind of behavior, it impacted my children. I just got a text message from Will that said they're ready to talk. So I am heading over to the bar where the uh, clandestine meeting is happening. Anyone with dirty money, I would say set up a South Dakota trust or LLC. So I'm not aware of any illegal activity or any illegal funds or anything of that nature. And you're confident that the system is functioning as it should in terms of guarding the integrity of it and the state? Yes. If that becomes uh, a fact, a proven fact, uh, I'll be very disappointed. I'll be very disappointed that we let ourselves be taken advantage of that way. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I am Martine Powers. It's Monday, October 4th. The state of South Dakota has developed a reputation similar to that of the Cayman Islands or Panama. Trust companies in the state oversee hundreds of billions of dollars in assets. These companies make money by setting up and managing assets for trusts. And it's not only stock portfolios and money. It's art and real estate, life insurance policies and companies. It's a flourishing industry and one of the most secretive of its kind in the world. We're going to take you into our investigation of who has assets in South Dakota and why that matters. We're going to pull back the curtain on how this industry began there in the first place. And we're going to hear from a whistleblower who knows how these deals get done. 
Taking us through all of this is post-investigative reporter Debbie Sensiper, Will Fitzgibbon from ICIJ, the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, and post-producer Ted Muldoon. And he's going to pick it up from here. Working on Post reports, there's like a handful of reporters that I usually check in on just to see what they're working on. Debbie's one of them because it's usually something interesting. Earlier this year, I asked her that, and she said, I can't tell you. And I was like, all right, uh, I guess I'll check back in a couple months. What I know now is that she was at the start of this intensive work, and she didn't really know where it was going to lead. I had lunch late last year in 2020 with the head of ICIJ, who was in town visiting from Australia. And he started telling me about having millions of secret documents. And uh, my first thought was, you know, can we bring this to the Washington Post? ICIJ obtained these documents more than a year ago now. Will Fitzgibbon is a reporter at ICIJ. These are documents that ICIJ did not ask for, did not seek out, but that came to us. We were going to have around 12 million documents. And we knew from a very cursory glance that many of these documents contained secrets about some of the world's richest people, but also many of the world's powerful people, politicians, even leaders of countries, kings, queens, and presidents. We see emails, we see copies of passports, bank statements, contracts signed between shell companies, documents that create trusts. And all of these documents came from not one, but... 14 law firms and wealth management companies in different tax havens around the world who every day deal with hundreds or thousands of clients using their services. Offshore services that, as Will puts it, have created like this parallel universe where the most wealthy and powerful people in the world get to pick and choose the rules they want to play by. As Debbie and Will started making their way through the documents, they came across several names from an offshore service provider, this company called Trident Trust. In 2014, they'd set up an office in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. We had the receipts, if you will, of many, many foreigners and a few Americans who chose to set up very secretive trusts in the state of South Dakota that no one had ever reported on before. We divided up the names Mm -hmm. and we really started drilling down on who moved their money here And when did they move their money here? And why did they move their money here? And we started finding politicians and industrialists, including some who have been in trouble in their home countries and who have uh, moved their assets and hidden their assets here in the U.S. And I think important to add that many of these people who we found, we found really easily. You remember that first time when we're searching one name of a guy very wealthy Colombian textile magnate named Jose Duer Amber. And this is someone who, within the first four or five results on Google, pops up with international news headlines from almost 20 years ago with titles like Cocaine Ring Busted, links to the Department of Justice website in different countries also, talking about his role after a international cocaine Ring was busted by investigators in the US, in Canada, and the United Kingdom. Now, Mr. Dua Amber wasn't involved in the narco trafficking himself, but he did have to forfeit $20 million as a result of some money exchange brokering that he was involved in as part of that case. So Debbie and I saw this name and we were like, what? 
So after finding that first name, what other kind of names did you start uncovering? People who accumulated their wealth while either they or their companies faced credible accusations of wrongdoing, everything from fraud to bribery to human rights abuses. I nearly fell off my chair when we discovered that the newly elected president of Ecuador, Guillermo Lasso, has recently created a trust in South Dakota. He's denied uh, wrongdoing, but there have been media reports in the past that accused him of improprieties with offshore companies. Speaking of Ecuador, we found two brothers whose family once had one of the largest banks in Ecuador, and they were accused by the government years ago of stealing government bailout money from this failed bank. They fled to Miami, and they had been wanted by the government of Ecuador for years. Oh, these were the guys you were talking about who said they fled because they were victims of political persecution, right? That's correct. Their family, as well, has several trusts in South Dakota. Recently, their conviction was overturned in Ecuador, and many people who are creditors of that bank were pretty upset about it. We found a Brazilian uh, orange juice magnate who back in the 1990s was sanctioned even in the United States for some dodgy dealings here and who in Brazil has been named in many lawsuits uh, including ones related to uh, damaging the environment and to uh, violating labor laws. All Specifically s- underpaying local farmers. One of the most interesting is a man named Carlos Morales Troncoso who is now deceased, but he was the former vice president of the Dominican Republic. Minister Morales, thank you. Speaking last, uh, there's a big advantage. And I've uh, been together since for many months with the foreign ministers here. Carlos Morales was foreign minister. He was Dominican Republic's ambassador to the United States. He was also a sugar baron from the Dominican Republic. And for years, he led a company that is the largest sugar producing company in the Dominican Republic. This sugar operation stood accused for years, both before, during and after Mr. Morales took over of human rights and labor abuses. So Carlos Morales died in 2014. What we see in the Pandora Papers documents is that in early 2019, Morales's four daughters set up trusts in South Dakota. That's what's so stunning about all of this, is that if we were able to do Google searches and find easily accessible records, public reports and government reports and court records and, you know, newspaper accounts of wrongdoing, It seems like it would have been fairly easy for trust companies to do this. And it's important to say that we don't know to what extent they did this research because our records don't show us. But it does make you wonder what they knew and what went into their decision making. Why did they allow them to become customers, clients here in the U.S.? And at this point, we should say that there's nothing illegal about a rich person, someone who's been in trouble before, but whose case has been resolved. There's nothing illegal in that person moving money into the United States or really moving it anywhere, necessarily. The million dollar question here is, even if it is legal for people with questionable backgrounds to be moving their money in the United States, do we want that to happen? 
does the United States want to allow its financial system to shelter assets that were accumulated amid credible accusations of criminal activity, human rights and labor abuses in some of the world's most vulnerable countries? And also, what does South Dakota know about this? Okay, here's a thing I don't understand totally. What is a trust and how does it function as a financial instrument? (laughs) What are we talking about when we talk about trusts? Trusts are legal and commonly used financial instruments. Many, many people have trusts and you don't have to be rich to have a trust. But what we do know and what I've certainly seen in years of reporting on this kind of subject matter is that trusts around the world, not just in the United States, have routinely been used by corrupt foreign politicians and by criminals in fraudulent or corrupt schemes to move money around the world and to hide that money. Because a trust is an incredibly secretive legal arrangement. It's not a company. What it does is create an agreement between at least three different people, someone who has money, someone who offers to manage that money, and someone who is the beneficiary of that money. And as you can tell, even from that simple explanation, that immediately muddies the water in terms of who owns what and who controls what. One of the benefits of having a trust and having a trust in a country where you don't live or where you're not a citizen is it basically adds a whole other layer of legwork, a whole other set of challenges for authorities in your own country to find out where the heck your money is, right? It's very easy If I'm a Brazilian billionaire and I've got a bank account in Brazil, for a whole bunch of reasons we can imagine, it's not that hard for police or the tax office in Brazil to find out about my bank account. But if I have a Swiss bank account and that bank account isn't registered in my name, but it's registered in the name of a company, and that company is then registered as being owned by a trust in South Dakota, that's something that experts call layering. You can kind of imagine that the Brazilian tax inspector is sitting there in the capital city, like pulling her hair out. Why South Dakota? Like, why are we focusing there? And what is the origins of the trust industry in that state? I mean, I think it's important to know that South Dakota bills itself as an international, you know, leader in the trust industry. There are thriving trust industries in a number of U.S. states, Alaska, Delaware, Nevada, We focused on South Dakota, though, for another reason, and that's that her documents led us there. When it comes to the origins of the trust industry, we really wanted to focus on, you know, who was behind this modern-day trust industry, the architects of the trust industry here in the United States. Where did this all start, the modern-day trust industry? Because trusts have been around for generations and generations. But we really wanted to know who started this industry and did they benefit from the industry? I've probably written at least 100 state laws, primarily in New York, but some in California and Florida and in Alaska. One of the architects of the modern-day trust industry is a New York lawyer named Jonathan Blattmacher. And as a lawyer, he really wanted to help his clients protect their assets. And in the mid-1990s, I came up with a notion that if I could get laws passed which would protect interests in trust they created for themselves, that the clients would engage in more estate planning, which would benefit themselves as well as family members. 
So in any event, when I first came up with these ideas, I presented them to my brethren in the New York bar. And said, you know, I really want to allow the trust industry in New York to protect the assets of trust from creditors. Creditors are basically people and companies who are owed money. And they acted like I was absolutely a madman. In fact, one of them said, well, what's going to be next, Jonathan? We're going to reintroduce wife beating? And the Bar Association in New York basically said, yeah, right, not going to happen in New York. So he went out to Alaska and he was trolling for salmon with his brother, Doug. And I mentioned to Doug, who had been a trust officer for many, many years in Alaska, that I had these ideas. And he said, Jonathan, those are great ideas. I think Alaska will go for this. And in fact, Alaska did. It was HB, House Bill Number 1, and it passed in the first week of the legislature, 97, and Governor Knoll signed it into law. And he actually had a reception for my brother and me at the governor's mansion in Juneau the following fall. And so Alaska became a national leader in the trust industry. Will and I reached out to former Governor Knowles about this. And he provided a comment. He said, after vetoing an original trust bill because of lack of protection for spouses and children, I signed a corrected version the following year. It had broad public and business and legislative support. I have not heard of any abuse of this bill in Alaska for the last 25 years. But as we're going to hear a little bit later, in South Dakota... The way the trust industry is set up could have an effect on children, particularly child support. I think once Alaska passed that law, a number of other states, including South Dakota, wanted to keep pace. It became this great competition. Who was going to have the most liberal uh, trust laws in the country? Some critics might call it the race to the bottom. Alaska would pass the bill in 97, then literally you'd have lawmakers in Delaware or South Dakota saying we need to outmatch Alaska by changing our laws so that we don't lose this financial services industry. I mean, if you think about it, the states we're talking about here are none of the states that any of us would really put on our top list of American economic superpowers, right? Uh, Alaska, New Hampshire, Nevada, South Dakota. So... Certain people with certain interests found a niche. And what Debbie and I have found also in talking to people who were there, who were part of what happened, and also going through the archives, we were really struck by the extent to which so many legislators were clueless at the time about what was happening. Yeah, I mean, one of the more surprising things was that as South Dakota started passing laws, dozens of laws, there was very little pushback from lawmakers in South Dakota. Further discussion on the motion? Uh, Mr. Chairman. Senator Kent. Just to briefly respond. There were only a handful of lawmakers in South Dakota over the years who raised questions about trust legislation. One of them was Craig Kennedy. I personally have a problem with the idea that just because somebody is going to do something somewhere... We ought to do it, too. This is an archival recording of Craig Kennedy, a longtime South Dakota lawmaker, and we were able to speak to him in his law office. To put it as simply as possible, I was troubled by the fact that we were being asked to pass laws that I didn't see were really of any benefit to the people of South Dakota. 
we were doing something for somebody else. And that got my antenna up. And I started wondering, well, why are we doing this? The legislative hearings about South Dakota trust bills are available online. The uh, Senate Committee on Commerce and Energy will come to order. And will the secretary please call the roll? So, for example, uh, the trust bills would come before the Commerce and Energy Committee in the Senate, which I served on. Every year, for every new session of the legislature, there'll be a new trust bill. A quorum is present. Senate Bill 93, an act to authorize qualified dispositions in trust. 1045. House Bill 1033. Senate Bill 97, 98, and 99. House Bill 1039 is the annual work product. Senate Bill 65, revised certain provisions pertaining to trust. Every year, just refreshing or updating the legislation so that South Dakota stays on top of the game. Those provisions came as a result and in response to Uh, what other states that are hot on the heels of South Dakota. And the people they hear from are articulate, they're intelligent, they're well-respected, and they represent an industry that's number one in the country. We now have uh, 103 trust companies that we regulate. Um, And as of the end of 2018, we don't have 19 numbers quite finalized yet, but uh, those companies had a a little over $305 billion in assets. You know, the trust business in South Dakota is a big deal. Um, It it generates a lot of money um, that we use in our general fund um, that, well, frankly, it's not a sin tax, so to speak. I remember once hearing Brett Aftal, the head of the South Dakota Banking Division, seeking to allay any concerns, talking about the only things harmed as a result of South Dakota's trust industry were trees. So it's a good thing, and as the Chief Justice said, it's a non-polluting industry, other than I suppose we kill a few trees. Um, Because of the paper that the laws are written on. Generally speaking, the bills had large portions of them that were not really troubling. But then there would be occasionally something in there that I would just look at and say, wait a minute, you know, why, why are we going here? Like, like what? What are some of these exceptional laws? Some of these laws are actually quite significant. It'll be legislation that will specifically introduce something like in the state of South Dakota, trust assets cannot be um, reached. reached by creditors, creditors XYZ. It'll be other laws we found in South Dakota that really promote secrecy. So South Dakota is one of, if not the only state in the United States, where any information about a trust case in court is immediately and permanently sealed. And nobody speaks in opposition. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, uh, members of the committee. I've come here this morning uh, with just a concern in, uh, to one section of this bill, Section 3, dealing with the public. Might be the first opponent we've ever had on the trust bill. Um, <laughs> surprise, guys. <laughs> That's what is so troubling about this, because, you know, you sit there from my perspective and say, all right, I'm one guy. And I may be the only one guy <laughs> who's raising these questions. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I got it wrong. Why didn't more of your colleagues push back? like you did? I, I can't speak for them. I, I can say this. Uh, when, when you're dealing with trust law, it is a very complex, very specialized area of practice. And most lawyers 
don't understand it to the level that the folks who are putting together the bills on behalf of the task force, we don't understand it to that extent. We've read through all the proposed legislation. It it, it makes your eyes glaze over. It really is hard to follow. We've continued the annual tradition of when the topic turns to trust, the room empties. Like literally people were leaving? Yep, because trusts are just of so little interest to anyone. This is uh, a technical bill, even by my standards, and so uh, I would just... uh, And then there was the late Jean Abdullah, who was the chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee, who said... If there's other proponents here, I'd appreciate the Me Too's, because he's got 97, 98, 99, and they all... Nobody understands any of them, so there's no sense... (laughs) Wow. Well, no one understands No any one understands this stuff anyway. Because they did pitch it every year as this is just cleaning cleaning stuff up. They didn't pitch it as this massive reform. It was very incremental. It's kind of been shocking and very sobering, I think, to just see how many times lawmakers in states were totally unprepared and overwhelmed by the technicalities of trust legislation and trust proposals. You know, after listening to some of these clips, it sounds like these trust proposals came down to a pretty simple argument for lawmakers in South Dakota. That essentially, the state has nothing to lose. No one gets hurt, unless you're talking about some trees, as Brett Aftal put it. But moreover, the state has everything to gain. I interviewed a lawmaker um, like Craig who fought back, but really said at the end of the day, I went ahead with it. And I asked him why. And he said, and I'll never forget this. He said, it's because I want to keep our sons and daughters in South Dakota. Basically, I want there to be jobs that keep good, high paying jobs, clean jobs here in South Dakota. And I don't want our kids moving on. And so I think they saw this as a chance to bring industry in. Well, it created jobs. There's no question about it. And it created income for the people that have those jobs. There's no doubt that that's true. I am sure there are some people that are making a pretty good amount of money from this industry. As far as income to the state, I think it's negligible. Uh, There's a little bit of money that goes into the division of banking, which is used to hire the people that uh, are supposed to regulate the trust industry. And there is a very small amount of tax paid. My memory is it's somewhere in the neighborhood of a million dollars a year, which is, it's nothing. But I'll tell you who benefited beyond the customers of trust companies are the architects of the industry here in the U.S. The people who promoted and lobbied and pushed for this industry in New Hampshire, in South Dakota, and Alaska directly benefited by this industry because they went out and set up trust companies. Part of what's troubled me about this trust industry, frankly, is that they have basically captured the state legislature and can essentially pass whatever they, they put together. Now, I think they're, they're good people. They're very bright. They're very articulate. I think they are well-intentioned. However, I also know that there are people in the world who are just as smart, just as capable, and who have bad outlooks and would take advantage of you if they thought they could. And that's my concern, is that we get ourselves set up where all of a sudden, uh, you know, we become like a Switzerland or like a Panama, where all of a sudden we're embarrassed because somebody took advantage of us. 
despite all of our best intentions. So to your point there, we do have information that people from outside the United States have parked their assets in South Dakota, into trusts in South Dakota. People that have done some bad things from in other countries. So I think that fear that you're talking about is is fact. And I I wonder how that will will make people in South Dakota or you feel, you know, when you hear about hear about that. Now, you know, I can't speak for other people in South Dakota. If you know, if that happens and if that becomes uh, a fact, a proven fact, uh, I'll be very disappointed. I'll be very disappointed that we let ourselves be taken advantage of that way. Craig Kennedy isn't a member of the legislature anymore. So we wanted to talk to somebody who's still there, and someone who has vocally supported the trust industry in the past. It took us several tries to reach someone who would speak with us for this episode. Okay. Okay. Who are we, who are we calling? Um, let's try South Dakota House of Representative Mark Willardson. Okay. Um, he was someone that we heard earlier in one of those archival recordings. You know, the trust business in South Dakota is a big deal. Um, it, it generates a lot of money um, that we use in our general fund um, that, well, frankly, it's not a sin tax, so to speak. <clears throat> this is Mark. Good afternoon, Mr. Williston. I'm a reporter and I'm doing some reporting on the South Dakota trust industry. We're looking at a number of foreigners in particular, uh, foreign millionaires and billionaires who've created trusts in South Dakota. um, And these people are individuals in their country who've in some cases been uh, charged or investigated for corruption or bribery or human rights abuses. How does that make you feel as a representative of South Dakota? Well, I don't know of any person that um, foreign or otherwise has come to South Dakota to set up a trust. I deal with the laws that that we have and making sure that they're, you know, fair for everyone. So I'm not aware of any illegal activity or any illegal funds or anything of that nature. Even if the money, for example, were not illegal, would it concern you as a South Dakotan or as a lawmaker if individuals who'd been investigated, arrested, uh, or criticized for human rights abuses, for bribery, for corruption, for drug trafficking, had moved any of their assets into South Dakota? Or is that something that you think South Dakota has to and can accept by virtue of being a financial haven? Well, again, I'm, I don't know any of the individuals that have trust. Mm-hmm. Um, so our, our laws are, are set up to, um, be legal, um, and to, to maintain the integrity of the, of the system for that. So I'm not aware of any other outside activity. 
And you're confident that the system is functioning as it should in terms of guarding the integrity of it and the state? Yes. I would add in defense of lawmakers in South Dakota and elsewhere, they passed these bills because the trust industry said it was healthy for the state. State officials didn't necessarily dispute that. And they really didn't know any better because they didn't know that there were people from other countries parking their assets in trusts. They didn't know because this industry is not transparent. And so all of the concerns were essentially hypothetical and they just didn't know. And now we know. Yeah, now we know. Right. After the break, things get a lot less hypothetical. I'm walking now towards what looks like a wall of green sugarcane. We've arrived in the Dominican Republic. Expect a bit of crunching as I move through. Twenty-three hundred miles away from Sioux Falls, in one of the poorest corners of the Dominican Republic, is a community of families and workers heavily impacted by the practices of Central Romana, the main employer in this community. Central Romana is this massive sugarcane company, the largest sugar producer in the Dominican Republic. They ship tons of sugar to the United States. And for years, this company has faced allegations and criticism of uh, human rights and labor abuses underpaid workers, terrible living conditions, a lack of access to electricity, safe drinking water, using chemicals without uh, adequate protective gear. The sugar operation in this community dates back a century. And though the ownership of this sugar operation has changed over the years, the allegations have really stayed the same. So we've just arrived in what's called a batea in the Dominican Republic, which is a small, poor community of Central Romana sugarcane workers. This one we've come to now probably has about 50 to 60 families in simple brick houses, overcrowded, no electricity directly to the house, shared toilets outside multiple families. So the sugar operation was run for years by the late Carlos Morales. He took control of the operation in the 1970s. And then in 86, he stepped down to become the elected vice president of the Dominican Republic. And the allegations of labor and human rights abuses started before he took the reins of this company, continued while he was at the head of this company, and continued afterwards. And even after he stepped down, he continued to defend the sugar industry in the Dominican Republic from international condemnation. 
What Debbie and Will found is that five years after Carlos Morales died in 2014, his daughters moved their family's personal wealth into several trusts in South Dakota, which included shares of Central Romana. In total, Debbie and Will found four South Dakota trusts that hold about $14 million in value. So we spoke to a number of Central Romana employees. As with so many of them, they're uh, often born in Haiti, have now lived often in undocumented or legally precarious situations in the Dominican Republic for decades and decades, having worked in the sugarcane fields for a very long time. On his way here, somebody on the bus told him, listen, if you're trying to get a job, once we get there, I know the perfect people that would give you a job. These are people in this community, workers who wear chemicals on their backs and their backs are hurting and their backs are covered with blisters and they work all day in intense heat every day from six in the morning until past dusk for a couple of U.S. dollars a day, essentially. Can I ask a question? What is the hardest part of your job as a fumigator? To me, it's like wearing this thing on my back. What is the thing you fear the most for you or your family with the job that you have and with the living conditions that you have now? My biggest concern right now is the conditions that I'm living in. Um, I don't have any other option as far as jobs. I don't even know how the outside world is outside of this because ever since I got here, since I was a kid, I've only been working for this company. This is the life I know. And right now my wife is pregnant. Uh, The person I remember most was a little girl. Who was five or so years old in 2016 when Central Romana guards came out in the middle of the night uh, with bulldozers and and forcibly evicted 60 families from their homes uh, because these makeshift homes were on an abandoned road that was lining their sugarcane plantations. This raid happened in 2016, two years after Mr. Morales had died. And this little girl stumbled outside into uh, uh, rain and, and thunder, and she was so scared that she grabbed one shoe and left the other one and never could never find it because the house was torn down and it was the only pair of shoes she had. And this little girl could not go to school for a month because her father could not afford to buy her another pair of shoes. Central Romana and other major sugarcane producers in the Dominican Republic for years have faced accusations by human rights lawyers about poor working conditions and poor housing for their workers. And the U.S. government in its report on the DR. Has Central Romana provided any response to your findings? Yes, we received a pretty extensive response from Central Romana. They say they have been, you know, good neighbors, good employer in that community, that they've built thousands of homes, donated land for schools and other facilities. They say that they're doing their best to provide electricity 
to the workers who live in company housing, but they can't because, you know, they're dependent on the power grid that's controlled by the government. They say they provide safe drinking water and that they're doing their best to make sure that the children there go to school. You know, when we were there, we went to several different communities with company housing. We still saw some pretty desperate conditions. And what about the family of Carlos Morales? Through their lawyer, Mr. Morales's family, four grown daughters, say that they've never been employed and have had no control in the operation of Central Romana. They decline to comment on their trusts in South Dakota or the status of those trusts. And what about Trident Trust? Have they given any comment about these shares of Central Romana being held in a trust that they help manage? We have. Trident Trust got back to us and said about the Moraleses and other clients we asked about that their policy is not to comment on any specific individuals or families. Trident Trust made it very clear in their response that they're a company that follows the laws and the regulations of South Dakota, that they have strong and appropriate due diligence practices. And to be clear, we've found no evidence in the documents that any of these trust companies in the United States, including Trident Trust, accepted money from criminal proceeds related to clients around the world. But I think what we can definitely say, based on interviews that we've done and the research on the trust industry, is that this kind of secretive financial structure, especially when it relates to million-dollar and multi-million-dollar wealth pools that come from developing countries, is really playing an important role in the growth of inequality around the world. What South Dakota is allowing and enabling is the perpetualization of gross inequality. Because if you're a billionaire or a rich person in a largely poor country, like Guatemala, like the Dominican Republic, like Ecuador, and if you move your assets into South Dakota, where you might be avoiding paying certain taxes to your home country, and when South Dakota is helping you protect and grow those assets. That is only likely to further grow this inequality that we're seeing. The United States has been out front in condemning traditional offshore tax havens for years. Well, what does it say about the integrity of the American financial system if people with questionable assets, assets tied to allegations of human rights abuses, perhaps even criminal activity, in some of the poorest and most vulnerable places in the world are able to breach that system? Do we have a sense of how well these trust companies in South Dakota screen their clients? And how well regulated are these companies in South Dakota? Pretty poorly is the answer from many, many anti-money laundering experts and financial experts we've spoken to. We know that for many, many years, the trust industry has largely been uh, overlooked or it's flown under the radar in terms of both state and federal regulation. Most people do agree that regulations introduced last year by the Department of the Treasury have improved things somewhat, so there is hope that there will be more attention on the trust industry. But everyone I've spoken to in this sector says, look, trusts have been overlooked for a long period of time. And that's especially true with the United States. The United States is infamous around the world for having really lax rules when it comes to requirements for, say, trust company officers 
to know the source of funds or the source of wealth of people who park assets within this country. Yeah, essentially state and federal regulators really leave it up to trust companies to decide how much to to dig and what is acceptable and what is not. We asked the Division of Banking in South Dakota about due diligence, and and they they gave us a a robust response um, saying that they do regulate and that they do look behind uh, trust companies to see who they're accepting as clients. The people that we spoke to, including insiders in this industry, say that that's just not the case. And that's what we've heard from the whistleblower. There was one person that we met with in South Dakota, a whistleblower from inside the industry, who raised a number of concerning questions about whether trust companies were really and truly doing due diligence on their clients. What do we know about this person? All we know is that he, she, or they will be wearing an hat when we turn up to meet them at a bar in downtown Sioux Falls this afternoon. The three of us traveled to South Dakota for this meeting, not knowing exactly what to expect. The source was understandably cautious, so the plan was that Debbie and Will would go, and I'd hang back at the hotel and be on standby. It's very Woodward and Bernstein, meet in a dark garage. But it's one of those rare moments in investigative reporting where kind of things align and come together. So we have high hopes. I just got a text message from Will that said they're ready to talk. So I am heading over to the bar where the uh, clandestine meeting is happening. You're about to hear a recording of our interview with the whistleblower. But to protect their identity, we've replaced the voice of the whistleblower with someone reading from a transcript of what was said. What worries you specifically in in your job? What what kinds of things do you see that make, you know, red flags? Just the fact that we don't always know who the transactions are benefiting. That's the main one. And I feel it's our responsibility to know that if we're processing those transactions we should know who the ultimate benefactor of these transactions is. And the fact that we don't, it gives me a lot of anxiety. So the whistleblower works at a bank in South Dakota, and one of their jobs is to look at the profiles and the backgrounds, really in the life history of potential clients of this bank, and to decide really who is acceptable and who is not acceptable. So the way this would usually work is that a foreigner, for example, would go to a trust company and set up a new trust. Let's call it the Sunshine Trust. I've just made that up. And this Sunshine Trust then might want to open or hold a bank account as the trust asset in South Dakota. It's at this bank or with this bank account that the whistleblower then comes in. Um, If I find something bad out there on someone, that's what... That's where I report to my superiors. I say, hey, this person is involved with this. Maybe that doesn't necessarily mean that this is illegal, but do we want to be seen conducting transactions on behalf of this person who is accused of being involved in this? So the whistleblower said in many cases, trust companies provided very little information. And you get that from the trust company if you ask? Or are you on your own to... How how would you find out? We can ask. They don't have to give it to us. Um, They absolutely don't because our privacy laws in South Dakota are set up to where 
they are under no obligation to disclose that to anyone, even their bank. And so with very little information about the client from the trust company, the whistleblower (laughs) described the tools, the same research tools I think that most people would have, which is basically Google searches. You do a Google search, the algorithms that they have, they're not going to turn up everything that's relevant right away. And so you have to really scroll down and make sure that you're not missing anything. It almost feels like you are a second line of defense. Yes. After the trust company is your the client first. is the first line. Yeah. How often do you find yourself going, holy crap, how did this ultimate beneficiary get through that first line of defense? At least once a week. Okay. Yeah. And with the cases that make you say, holy crap, can you tell us, like, what have you found on some of the beneficial? Yeah. Who are they? Not without, I'm not asking you to be that specific. Uh, people related to organized crime, um, people with questionable sources of wealth, um, people in countries that we're not necessarily comfortable with. Were you surprised that they were even in the system anyway? No, I wasn't surprised. Because anyone with dirty money, I would say, set up a South Dakota trust or LLC. It would be one of the easier ways to launder it. And is the reality of this that if someone in your position says, no, we're not willing to accept that risk, how high is the possibility that the trust then goes to another financial institution where the same person in your position is going to say, sure? Oh, I'd say very high. Very high, because I... trying to do all the research I can to make me better at my job. There's no one else out there doing what we're doing. This is just one person doing due diligence on the clients of trust companies. Imagine what we don't know about. So we've been told a lot uh, in South Dakota and during our visits that it's a well-regulated industry. The Division of Banking does a good job in auditing trust companies, making sure it's clean. There have rarely been any fines or any negative enforcement actions taken against trust companies nothing to see here, move on. What does your experience lead you to respond to that rosy statement? I question it a lot. Because um, if I was an auditor auditing them, I'd have some serious questions. Um, but I think we talked about it before. Um, the South Dakota Division of Banking, South Dakota Governor's Trust Task Force, who's on that task force? Trust lawyers. It's full of trust lawyers. So the people who are writing and enforcing these laws are the people who benefit the most from those laws being the way that they are. And so I highly doubt that they are giving it the proper scrutiny that they should be. South Dakota is the only state in the country that has a permanently established governor-created task force whose job every year is to uh, draft and propose new laws for the trust industry. That task force, uh, as it now currently stands, uh, except for one member, is entirely staffed by trust lawyers, trust experts, and people who work in banks that offer trust services. So what the whistleblower told us, but also what we've heard from other people, including 
lawmakers and critics of the trust industry is that it's a little bit like the fox guarding the hen house, that you've got people literally who make their salaries off the trust industry and who want to encourage more foreign clients into South Dakota. And these are the people who are quite literally drafting the laws. If you were to describe your dad, what's his personality like? I think he just enjoys life to the fullest. I think he likes to have a lot of fun. Um, protective. <laughs> Wants to spend really time really with his protective. family. Yeah, he's like family oriented. These are the two children of a man named Chris Palick, who live in Santa Barbara, California. So can you, uh, can you just tell us where we are, who we're with? So who we are with is my daughter, my son. We are on a beach called Padero Beach. My son and daughter have grown up surfing here. For the last few years, this family has found themselves wrapped up in this bizarre lawsuit in South Dakota. That's basically cemented some of these unprecedented laws passed by the legislature relating to creditors. In this case, involving child support payments. Christopher Palank is a dad of two kids. He was previously married to uh, Cleopatra Cameron, an oil heiress who Growing up and still does have a trust worth millions and millions of dollars. That trust for a long time was based in California and even after their divorce was regularly paying out child support to the kids. When was the last time they saw their mom? Was it? I can't even remember. It's been that long. Oh, it's been eight years? Yeah. I can't remember. Yeah, not a card. Cleopatra Cameron, on the advice of lawyers, moved her trust to South Dakota and the child payment stopped. And as a result, Chris Palank, as you can imagine, who all of a sudden is no longer getting child support, decides to take this case to court. After Chris's complaints went all the way to the Supreme Court there, a unanimous bench of judges agreed with the trust company, which meant that they agreed that child support could not be paid out of the trust created for Cleopatra Cameron, the mum of the two kids, Chris Palank couldn't comprehend of the world in which a judge in California had ordered child support payments, but another state was refusing to help enforce those payments. In all of our states, in our union, if I go to Arizona, I still have to pay that support. If I go to Florida, I still have to pay that support. Right? And they would come after you if you didn't. And they would come after me if they didn't, That's yeah. Right. So not only did South Dakota give my ex a, an avenue to not pay the support, but they made it so convoluted that California is not even going to pursue any kind of legal. That Supreme Court decision really set legal precedent, basically backed up this law that lawmakers passed in South Dakota saying creditors cannot breach trust. I'm not sure where to go with this because it was when the support stopped coming in that that things really changed. And, and so, you know, are they able to go to the same school? Am I able to provide for them on the level that I was prior? So instead of me working, say, six hours, I've got to work 10 hours. And, you know, he definitely described the losses, the financial losses, the activities they could no longer participate in. 
extracurricular activities, whether it was going to soccer, team gymnastics, and, and, and things. So we could no longer afford that. Did your daughter or your son, though, when that support stopped, ever say anything to you? Did they ask you why it stopped? They don't ask you so much of why it stopped, right? Because they're mad. So what they do is when no one's looking, they cry. And as a parent, what you do is you hear this coming from the other room and you walk in there and there's nothing that I can say. All you can do is, is be around, is hold them. Have you managed to speak with Cleopatra Cameron? Yes. I had a one-hour conversation with Cleopatra Cameron, who called after I left messages with her attorney. And that was a really interesting, valuable conversation. There are always two sides to every story. Cleopatra Cameron, you know, explained to me why she chose South Dakota and how much she loves South Dakota for its... uh, laws as a trust jurisdiction. She explained that she worked with Trident Trust and that she approved of Trident Trust's decision to stop paying out child support from the trust. Cleopatra Cameron was very clear that her intention has never been to avoid child support payments, but rather that she and Trident Trust object to her husband, Chris Palank, receiving that money because they don't think he's a good steward of that money and that that's why they decided to end those payments, but that she'd be willing to support and always has been willing to support her children in any other way. And what about Trident Trust? Did they offer any comments specifically on Cleopatra Cameron's case? They did not. Trident Trust declined to address any specific clients. Chris said eventually they started to get monthly payments again, $1,500 a month for living expenses. But payments can be made at the discretion of the trust. 1500 per child? No. Total? Yeah. And just to be clear, this is not the court-ordered child support. That amount would be about $8,500 a month. But because of the decision by the South Dakota Supreme Court, not paying that child support is perfectly fine to do. And you can see how that precedent could be applied to similar situations involving child support. This is just my opinion, is as a result of this ruling, this precedent that's been set, there's going to be more victims. Right, because based on what the Supreme Court said or what was decided in South Dakota, as much as the court might have said it didn't want to, there's now advertising basically saying, don't want to pay child support. Bring your trust here to South Dakota. We were talking before you came in about how when they passed, you know, these modifications to the law in South Dakota, creditors can't breach trusts, etc. Child support's okay. We don't actually think the lawmakers in South Dakota knew necessarily what the impact was. They created harm. They did harm to my children. I'll tell you that right now. I, I think I think them enabling this kind of behavior um, it impacted my children for sure. I think what that case really showed us and why we thought it was so important to our reporting is that this is not a victimless situation. There are people and children who were dramatically affected by this industry and by the laws that were passed.
what are the potential solutions to some of the issues that you two have uncovered? There are law professors out there and experts who say that at a certain level, there's a simple fix to some of the abuses of trusts that have harmed victims, such as spouses, children who've been denied child support payments, or victims of accidents who've never received compensation because the person who caused their accident owned a trust. And at a state level, these experts tell us all it really requires is for lawmakers to be very clear. So it would require, for example, New Hampshire's legislature or South Dakota's legislature to introduce a tweak to current laws to just speak quite clear that in cases where someone who is a legitimate creditor who is owed money by an individual or an individual who has assets in a trust, that that creditor can legitimately access those trust assets. You know, for many, many years, as we know, the U.S. government has focused very heavily on the practices of banks and has really looked to kind of clean up the due diligence practices of banks, but have really not paid that much attention quite frankly, to the trust industry. And so uh, the experts that we talk to say uh, one remedy here is to just focus on the industry, require more due diligence, require more oversight by states to be sure that, you know, high-profile bad actors from outside the United States aren't able to put their money here. A lot of it, I think, is just in the due diligence requirements that need to be put in place for trust companies. One word that I'll say three times so that we make sure that everyone understands how important it is. Transparency, transparency, transparency. In other countries around the world, including many countries in Europe, people who create trusts or who are beneficiaries of trusts have to disclose their identity to the government in a central register. There's a big and growing push worldwide for that to be true in other countries, including in the United States. What we found in our reporting is that South Dakota and US trusts are attractive, they're sexy to foreigners, because these people know that they're highly secretive. And I think if there would be more transparency in this sector, if the state of South Dakota knew who its foreign customers were, let alone if there was some kind of public register available, I think many experts believe it would significantly reduce the chance of potential wrongdoing. Making that kind of a change at the state level, however, will not be popular uh, with the trust industry. So I think it's an uphill battle. I think one of the takeaways from this reporting is that people will understand that there are a number of people out there, a growing number of people out there, accusing the United States of of hypocrisy. That the United States, they say, has for years been criticising and picking off smaller tax havens, accusing these smaller countries of helping shield assets of dodgy people, but that the United States now is increasingly doing that itself. One of the things I took away from it is how decisions made in places like Sioux Falls, the heartland of the United States, can have such an impact on some of the world's poorest communities thousands of miles away. Offshore is no longer offshore. Yes. Offshore is onshore. Offshore is the United States. This is just one story from the Pandora Papers. The Washington Post has also been reporting many other stories, including ones about looted antiquities and some of the most wealthy and powerful people in the world. 
You'll hear more of those stories this week on the podcast about the King of Jordan and Russian President Vladimir Putin. It's all part of the investigation, the largest ever organized by ICIJ. Go to postreports.com to find links to the project. This story was reported by Debbie Sensiper and Will Fitzgibbon. It was produced and mixed by Ted Muldoon, who also contributed additional reporting. It was edited by Renita Jablonski and Robin Amer. Ziva Brandstetter, Rena Flores, Courtney Kahn, Allison Michaels, and Maggie Penman provided additional editing. It was fact-checked and copy-edited by Stu Warner. Voice acting by Molly Griggs. 